Hi, everybody. It is Friday, the 27th of December, 2019, and this is the Luke Thomas live chat, episode 12. Looking through all my mentions here. Uh, how are you doing? Happy post-Christmas to you. I'm wearing a Christmas sweater late. I figured better late than never because I didn't get to one last week. Um, so here we are. You guys know how this works. I put up a thread for questions uh, 24 hours ahead of time. You guys fill it up. Whatever you give the thumbs up to is the ones I'll give priority but not exclusivity to. You certainly are under no uh, demand or requirement to leave a donation. If you do, I will get to your question at the end of the show. Um, but not a requirement at all. Uh, and yeah, that's it. We'll go for about an hour and some change. You guys get the gist of everything. So without further ado, let's get this going, shall we? Shall we? All right, and here we are. Uh, as always, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Really appreciate that when you do trying to drive home these subs at the end of the year. Um, yeah, got my Killer Cub coffee. Well, I got the mug. I don't have the coffee, but the mug's cool too, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. I'm a little tired, if I can just be honest with you, uh, because my daughter got up in the middle of the night and uh, I couldn't really go back to sleep, so I'm running on some fumes, bitches. But uh, you know what? We got a soldier on. That's what we are going to do. All right. Without further ado, you guys have all the information you need. I have all the information that I need. Let us begin. All right. First one's up. Uh, where did this rumor come from that Cerrone would purposely lose the fight against Connor? MMA media reported it, and Cerrone vehemently denied it. It's not clear where the media got this rumor. I thought that was one of the strangest stories I had seen. Um... My, my feeling about it was, I didn't, I didn't hear anybody suggest that Cerrone was going to take a dive, but rather that he was being brought in to lose, which is to say he was being brought in as a, an opponent that most people thought Connor had a good advantage over. Right, because if you look at the rankings, where is Connor? I think he's sitting at four. Gaethje's sitting at three. Cerrone's sitting at five. Now that's obviously the most updated version. Right. I mean, this was not the case when the fight was booked. But the point being was the two basically new fights available to him. You could have gone with a, a, a Poirier rematch, but they didn't want to go that direction. So it was either Gaethje or it was either that of Cerrone, and they went with Cerrone. And I think the implication was, and again, I don't think if you're if you're guiding Conor McGregor's career. Suggesting you take the Cerrone fight's probably the right call. You're coming off of a loss plus a long layoff off of another long layoff. You know, take somebody where there are some stylistic advantages, but who's not some chump. He's a top five guy, right? He's a good fighter. He's a great fighter. A record-setting fighter in certain capacities in the UFC. Um, and I think some people took that to mean Cerrone was being like led like a lamb to the slaughter. But I never heard literally anybody... Like, there was no... There was no like leaked text messages. Oh, Cerrone's going to take a dive, or uh, I don't know something. But I think the idea was that he was being brought in there to lose, not because he would try to lose, just because he would be overmatched, and it somehow got 
metastasized into this weird idea that this was all some kind of ruse. I didn't get that one at all. That was a really weird story. Um, and I, 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 I don't think it came from anywhere because no one is saying that, right? Uh, I mean, you know, maybe like a few crazies on the internet or something, but it wasn't like the talk of the MMA town. It just, there were just people saying, well, if he wanted the real tough fight, he would have taken Gaethje, which I don't think is an unfair criticism. But also, A, it's perfectly reasonable to take a top five fight, given the situation that he finds himself in, Conor McGregor. And two, that Cerrone, again, this is the, this is the belief. I don't know if this is the fact. The belief that Cerrone is at a stylistic disadvantage is not tantamount to he's going to just lay down <laughs> because he's getting paid to, like you know Bruce Willis was supposed to in Pulp Fiction or something like that. It was a really weird story, and to be honest, I don't know where it all went awry. I don't, to my knowledge, no one's presented any evidence beyond anything, zero evidence that that's a thing that people were actually discussing. Or that this was the thing that was going to happen. It just, to me, it came out of nowhere. Um, all right, next. Leon Edwards was dominated by <clears throat> Usman in their first fight. Why would a second fight be compelling? I don't know that it would be. Although I would say that, in fairness to Edwards, he's gotten significantly better since then. Also, in fairness to Kamaru, he's probably gotten a little bit better as well. So, um, I don't, I don't know that it would be compelling. I tend to think that, Kamara would have his way again. Uh, two, two of Israel Adesanya's toughest opponents, Vittori and Gastelum, are coached by Rafael Cordero. Is this a coincidence, or do you think he has an insight on the strategy employed by City Kickboxing? Well, not really, because Vittori, to the extent that he won, he won wrestling. And then Gastelum had a very interesting approach. Um as it related to getting on the inside of his punches. But they're two wildly different things. I mean, I would just say this. Rafael Cordero is obviously a very, very experienced coach, a very high-level coach, a a renowned coach for his abilities. Uh, if you're asking me, does a guy like that know what he's up against typically in preparing his fighters for unique or otherwise di difficult challenges, the answer is, certainly going to be yes that's not really true in the striking department but probably overall in MMA as well so in that particular sense maybe uh you know and I don't think he's necessarily under some kind of weird impression about what city kickboxing is or isn't doing he probably has eyes wide open at the same time you know easier said than done you can be fully cognizant of what they're doing and then just say well I don't know that we have do you have what it takes to beat the person now in the in the fairness to Vittori you know, wrestling is a good way to just work around all of their striking advantages, just force them to wrestle. Um, it wasn't enough in the end, but that is a pretty good and clear challenge. And as I've said about Gastelum in the fight without Asanya, one thing I thought he was really, really good at was staying way on the outside and then finding his way on the inside, you know, hitting the slips when he had to and then countering. Uh, and then, you know, really put... Adesanya in a bit of a wait-and-see period, you know, very small wait-and-see periods, but very wait-and-see periods to see what was going to happen. You know, as whereas with Whitaker was this sort of charging bull, um, which was almost like a sprint, a blitz. You had something of a blitz with Gaslam, but somewhat slower paced because he was waiting for the first shot to come in and then he would get out of the way. 
first or second shot, depending. So they had good strategies. Yeah, um, I don't know that it has a whole lot to do with taking away the the genius of the feints, but I'd have to talk more to Cordero. In general, though, I mean, you know, a guy that's successful, guys, he's going to have a really keen insight into the striking game as it relates to both Thai boxing and MMA. Um, but did I see anything about those guys as they employed strategies that told me that they knew what they were up against with what you know Eugene Behrman has cooked up in the lab? The last thing I'd say is probably not if you listen to their rhetoric. Right, the rhetoric was this guy is overrated. It's just a bunch of hype. It's not real. And you know, again, Adesanya is not—he's uh, human. And he—if MMA is what we know it to be, eventually he probably will lose. No one is invincible. But um, coming off of the what was it the Anderson Silva fight? Then he went into the—he uh, went into the Kelvin Gastelum fight. There was just the, the amount of skepticism, unfairly. I think we can now recognize that Adesanya was facing coming out of that was not it just didn't match the reality and I think Vittori when was the Vittori fight was that after the Wilkinson fight I believe that is correct let's see Israel Adesanya when was that fight um yeah yeah and so you know the guy had the sort of kickboxing reputation and remember Wilkinson got him down like what four or five times in that fight so I could see how Vittori might like his chances, but neither of those indicates to me that they're really aware of what sets those guys at that gym apart. Uh, Luke, the pacing of UFC events are killing me and turning off everyone I try to introduce to the sport. UFC 245 didn't end until after 2 a.m. Yeah, tell me about it. Why a 20-minute break between each fight? Also, uh, what do you do during those breaks? As a professional, I'm guessing you never miss the first minute of a fight while you prepare some nachos. I wish I had nachos, but I also can't imagine you suffering through the commercials. What does that 20-minute break look like for you? Usually I am um, making my thumbnail for the post-fight special, getting all that set up, setting up my camera equipment, any kind of lull in the action. I'm making sure the camera's charged, the wires are plugged in, the lighting is up. Um, again, I got my thumbnail ready to go. I've got all my uh, tagged keywords. I've got my description written out. I got the... I've got the stream key all set up. I've got my uh, production switcher working, the microphone plugged in, the volume is where it needs to be, which apparently sometimes it's not. Things like that. So I usually am pretty busy between the fights, or yeah, between the fights, so I don't really notice it. Well, one thing I'll say in defense of UFC is, one, 245 didn't really, I mean, that's not a very typical card. It had three title fights, and uh, what, did all go the distance? My memory is now fading from me. Um... Uh, No, the main event went almost the entire distance, right? It went, so you had full distance for Nunes' fight, full distance for Volkanovski's win, and then nearly the entire distance for Kamaru and Covington, which you have to get all the walkouts in. So why don't they speed it up in those particular cases? Well, that that was one of the situations where the UFC was just kind of hoping it wouldn't go that way, I suspect, because you have a, you have sold ahead of time a number of different things, including but not limited to ad inventory. So you've already told whoever's going to put ads on the show and whenever the reads are going to be, the production reads for John Anik, those are all specifically timed at a certain moment. You have to get those in. Right? You sold them. If not, you'll be in breach of contract. It'll be a huge problem. You have to get all of the other assets in to promote the next event. You have to set everything up. Like I'm not saying there's not some fat you couldn't trim off of that, but I think what they were hoping was, let's just have all of these normal production elements 
and then just hope that the three title fights don't all go basically the distance. And in fact, they basically did. So that was the problem there. UFC 245, a bit of an anomaly. And in fairness to UFC, this is not the Fox era where, you know, you had six fights on a main card. They start at 10, and it didn't matter if it was a 30-second knockout or went the full distance. Each fight was a half hour of production time where they would just fill it with whatever they had to. And very often, it would just be complete and total overkill. With their with their move to streaming in a more robust way, I think a lot of those issues have been fixed when they're on ESPN. I don't find them to be nearly as delayed. Not saying they're racing through, but that's not as much of a problem. I'd also say ESPN is much less hesitant to um, stick to a fixed time with FS1. It was all basically 10 p.m. when they started. You might have a card in Croatia. I think it's what it was between JDS and Ben Rothwell, whatever place that was. And they would start that on a you know a 1 p.m. But in general, the cards all started at 10 p.m. Uh, you, you, ESPN era is much better about starting them at 8 or whenever they have to. I mean, that Newark card was at 3 p.m. So I grant that your question's about the pacing, which doesn't really m- matter what the start time is. I'm just saying I don't think you notice it as bad if when the card starts at 8 and you're on and you're on streaming. 2.45, I recognize, though, that's the one you want to get your friends to pay attention to because that's got all the heavy hitters, three title fights, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, man, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Keep trying or don't. I don't try to recruit my friends to watch MMA, um, but I'm in a different position because as a person who pays their bills with this, I don't need friends over. In fact, it can be often distracting to watch with other people. So I recognize you're in a bit of a different scenario where you, hey, it would be nice to have some company to, to, to watch with this. Um, I would recommend not doing it for a pay-per-view where there's three title fights on. I know that sounds like it's the right one. It's probably not. Uh, a fight night card that starts a little bit earlier but has a really killer main event uh, or a pay-per-view card, but it's got you know one or two title fights on it, that's really where your bread and butter is going to be. you know. And I suspect also when Conor McGregor comes back, lots of people are going to be interested. So, But also, maybe your friends just don't like fighting. My friends don't like fighting, so... Out of Joanna, Rose, and Tatiana, which one presents the toughest challenge to Zhang Wiley? Are we assuming that Tatiana is healthy? Because if she's healthy, I think that's the answer. But I don't know if she's healthy, so I don't know that in the present condition it's not her. So that would leave Rose, and that would leave Joanna. Rose is Rose is an interesting one. Um, well, we went over last week. The Yoana fight, or two weeks ago, whatever it was, the Yoana and Zhang Weili fight is just going to be absolutely tremendous. Uh, both have extraordinarily high output. Both don't take a lot of damage. Both are good in the clinch. Obviously, very different body types, which I think will play a role one way or the other. Um, both competent in the full breadth of the game, even on the ground. Uh, obviously, Joanna Joanna has a lot more experience against high-level opposition, but I would say if you look at the career of Zhang Weili, even though she spent a lot of time in like Kunlun, which was this Chinese organization, she is she's faced a lot of different kind of opposition. Like she was groomed really well in her in her ascendancy, both before the UFC and then certainly within it. And then that last fight, you know, she just ran over Jessica Andrade. So that fight should be tremendous. We'll see what happens when Rose comes back, you know. She took a bit of a time off. She's like, I'm not sure I want to do this. But maybe that was just a temporary fleeting moment of she didn't feel like all that great about it. Um, And now things will be changing. So we'll see. Uh, I tend to think that Tatiana is the toughest fight for everybody in that division when she's at her healthiest. But that remains very much unclear about what the future is.
very much unclear. So there's no way to really know if that's actually fair. And then between Yuan and Rose, I'll say, you know, styles make fights. So I'll say... I might, I might say Rose. But, you know, 51-49 over Ioana, like, and, and that's very much, I don't know that that's a fair... That's t- it's, 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 look, it's a really great question, and I don't have a really great answer for it, except to say I look forward to seeing it play out, and then we can look back on it. But I think we're going to get a lot... I think we're going to get a lot of good information about Zhang Wiley here. Not because she hasn't had longer fights before. She certainly has. But not against someone who can do a lot of the same things she can do, but probably at a bit of a better range. Um, that will be an interesting challenge, I think, for her. If Wonder Woman had her lasso of truth. Yeah, I saw the new the ad for the new movie. Of the trailer. Wrapped around your waist and asked what you really thought of Joe Rogan. What would you say? Everything I say on this... Chat, y'all think I come up here and just lie to you or something? Y'all think I'm worried about if I say something, Rogan's going to get mad and I'm going to like, something's going to, you know, so I have to censor my opinion? Like, everything I've said on this is what I believe. Uh, I mean, I don't think I've given like a full dissertation on everything, but as it relates to his commentary, um, yeah, like it's what I said previously, which was, he was a, I mean, absolutely essential component to, I think, converting fans in the era in which that, you know, obviously he was their pre-Ultimate Fighter, but certainly post-Ultimate Fighter, when you had a lot of people peering in and they had a really difficult time sometimes understanding what they were looking at, Rogan was uh, critical. I think critical at that time. He was just so full of enthusiasm, so committed to that task of, I'm going to make sure people really understand at this critical juncture in the sport's life what they're looking at. And he's obviously had a lot of memorable sayings. He's really good post-fight, like putting a microphone in someone's face. I know there's been some questions about should you interview or not interview a concussed fighter, but what I mean in terms of broadcast ability, he's always been really good. That dates back to the SEG era when he was you a know, backstage reporter initially, uh, back when he had a full head of hair. So, like, you know, one, his bona fides are as legitimate as they come. He's been involved in caring about MMA before most people in MMA ever really did. Um, he's been a loyal servant of the sport. I think a loyal servant of the UFC, which I don't say is a bad thing. I say is a good thing. Um, I would say today, I think that style of commentary, I don't think is as helpful or as really as necessary. It's not that those people don't exist, but I think in the modern era, when it's on ESPN, when it's in the firmament of, uh, the larger sporting ecosystem, what really is helpful is that Dominic Cruz, that Daniel Cormier, that Dan Hardy next level commentary where they're really beginning to dig into the details. And that, that's why there's a three-man booth is because he can do some of that, but not, not as much as those guys. And he obviously provides a bit of a literary narrative uh, relative to what John Anik is doing, who's very clinical and play-by-play. So he finds a nice little middle ground there. I'd also say the following. You know, we had a discussion. The, the video for the, M- the MMA Media Symposium that we did at UFC DC is going to go up. I have the copy. It's going to go up on my channel. We're trying to get some editing issues worked out. But um, in there, there's discussion about how only fighters should be calling fights. And my general rule on that is, well, like, I'm not going to say that, you know, uh, people who haven't fought are going to call it better than Daniel Cormier. That seems quite ridiculous. But it also seems as a general rule that if you haven't fought, you can't call fights. I mean, Max Kellerman did it on HBO Boxing. If you look at where I work at Showtime, um, Steve Farhood, Al Bernstein, it's just sort of taken as a given that they're good at their jobs and because they are good at their jobs. And no, they're not providing the same level of technical insight that Paulie Malignaggi is, who I know MMA fans don't like, but trust me when I tell you, 
as a boxing commentator, he is excellent. Uh, one of the best ones, I think, if not the best one working in the sport today. He's certainly a lot better than Lennox Lewis. Let me give you a real clear um, – I, I just know how you could debate that in any event. It's not that fighters wouldn't – I mean, who's done the job? The fighters. But that being able to fight and then being able to be a broadcaster about fights, they're overlapping skills but not exactly – not exactly the same. The point being is I think it's helpful for someone like Rogan to be there um, to show that there is a place for people who are martial arts-centric but are outside the fighter experience but that still have something uh, to contribute. It may not be that technical analysis that he was leaned on for previously in a different era of the sport, but it's still a place. Now, as it relates to his podcast, I don't really watch it. You know, If he has a really big guest on now and again, I'll take a look. Um, I don't really pay attention to it, not out of spite, the, I swear to God. One, it's like, you know, he had James Hetfield on, so I paid attention to that. It was a while ago. You know, they're talking about beekeeping and stuff, and it was interesting, but it's like three hours, and, you know, I just don't have time to get into that. And two, it's like, I noticed in MMA, a lot of people like all of the same things. And that doesn't say, that isn't to say that those things don't have value. They probably have a lot of value, but just as a way to, like, differentiate what I'm seeing in the sport, I tend to go the other direction. If everyone is just focused on one thing, um, I like to go a bit of a different direction. So I don't really have much of a comment about this podcast other than to say it's obviously wildly successful. So, you know, uh, beyond that, I don't know Joe. Um, you know, talked to him a few times, interviewed him at Glory Last Man Standing, exchanged DMs a couple times. Over the, you know, We're talking, of course, of many years. That's about it. That's about it. I don't really know him. So, you know, making these broad generalizations about what he is and isn't doing, I don't think is something I'm really capable of beyond the commentary role that he serves in UFC. If someone asked me a lot about his podcast, I, I would not be in a strong position to, I mean, I'm certain many of you could give a significantly better answer. I, I just don't watch it. Again, not like as a rule that I never watch it, but as a general rule, I just don't have time for it. But I'll make exceptions here or there, you know. I watched his Andrew Yang when he was on there. I watched uh, Bernie Sanders when he was on there, James Hetfield when he was on there. Um I didn't see the Elon Musk one, which I guess is the big one. Uh, yeah, that's a handful of other ones. Luke, has Holloway peaked as a fighter? I assume he will be still competitive at 145 and 155, but I could see him easily falling into a Frankie Edgar position, winning good fights and getting title shots, but never touching the greatness he once had. That seems to me not an unreasonable concern, but I don't know, a little premature. Like, he lost to Volkanovsky, and the reason Volkanovsky won is pretty clear in my judgment. It's quite simple, really, to state it in the most plain terms. He is just very good about disguising what he's doing, landing, and then getting out of the way, and then chipping away at you over the course of five rounds, right? It's really what he's good at. Um, and that gave Holloway some trouble. This is why I don't want to see an immediate rematch. I know Dana White, apparently, I didn't realize this until my producers told me about this on my radio show. I guess the night of 245, Dana gave lip service to the idea there should be a rematch automatically in Australia. Now, um, Volkanovski had that hand injury, and I know that Max said he didn't take a ton of damage in this one. So that's, uh, to me, I'm not saying the hand injury is good, but, you know, push things back a little bit. That would still make it an immediate rematch, but not like right away. But I, I just don't agree with that. One, you got to let the rivalry bleed, like, or um, breathe. You look at these two guys, man, maybe, maybe Korean Zombie's a bit of an X factor in that division. I guess we'll have to see. But when I look at what Volkanovski's doing and when I look at what Holloway has done, man, it looks pretty clear to me like these are the two best guys at 145. Two best guys at 145, maybe by a mile. The Korean Zombie one, we'll have to see how that goes. But 
for now, that seems to be the case. I don't know that you need to rush them right back into each other. I don't think that the fight really warranted that. I know there's a strong disagreement out there among people who think and believe that that fight was very, very close and that it could have gone either way. I, I just don't agree with that characterization at all. I think when you really dig into the details and you look at it, yes, numerically, the numbers were kind of close. Um, and Max didn't take a big one big shot that knocked him down. He wasn't nearly as banged up as when he fought Poirier, where I think a lot of people would look at that and say, well, that's a case where you shouldn't do an immediate rematch. Nevertheless, the reasons of trickery that uh, confused and ultimately muted Holloway um, I, I do think he is capable of making the adjustments to beat uh, out Volkanovski, in, including and maybe in the immediate rematch. I would just like it one more if there's a little bit of space between them, a year or something like that. You get much better competitive rematches when you let them space out. You know, I mean, how many times we need to see where Yolanda gets immediate rematch and it blows up in her face, or when, um, or when um, you know Jose Aldo gets an immediate rematch and it blows up in his face, or go to Cody Garbrandt or whoever. You can just go down the list of people like, oh, let's run it back, and then it doesn't. The person doesn't get what they want. Rather, you got an immediate rematch in the case of Stipe and DC, but it was so far apart. There was, I think, enough time for there to be just enough difference. And again, even in the space of that fight, that adjustment period where you had enough experience with this guy now to begin to make a read on him, uh, you need that times 10 with Volkanovski. And I think Max is up for the challenge. Please don't misunderstand me. If, if anyone is capable of beating Volkanovski, it is Max Holloway. But what I don't want to find ourselves in is a situation where they do the rematch right away. It's a narrow fight, but Volkanovski comes away with a split decision win. And now Max is sitting there in this Rich Franklin position, which is terrible for his career. Now he could go to 155, I suppose, and ply his wares there. Okay, fine. But uh, uh, is that really what the best case scenario is? Or do we just wait just a little bit? Just a little bit. Let there breathe. Let there be a little space in there. Give Max plenty of time in the laboratory to really work on the details and then have them come back. And then let's see. That, I think, is just, it, it, you're going to get, you, uh, you, you'll have me on pins and needles if you do that. Um, I know a lot of folks don't agree. Fine. I, I can't convince you. I can't convince you. But the risk of having Holloway just sit in a position like Rich Franklin when he's as good as he is, and maybe you could have avoided it by being just a little bit more patient with the matchmaking, Seems to me, seems to me worth it. So no, I don't think he's peaked as a fighter, um, but he might have his options limited as a one forty-five pound champion if they rush the immediate rematch. All right, this person says, Luke, why did you block me on Twitter? I don't know. I don't know who you are. All I said was Dustin was the hip injury champion of the world, which is a fact. Please unblock me so I can see your tweets. Uh, no. So there you go. Do you think, but, but, dude, blocking people and muting people on t Twitter is like a great idea. And people do it to me. It's fine. I get it. I'm not, I don't ever get mad about it. Like, do what you got to do to get through social media where the, you know, the signal to noise ratio, if you don't, if you don't curate it, can be pretty high. Some people like to go just drink water from the garden hose outside. Some people like to drink it from the tap. I like to run mine through a filter. That's it. Uh, do you think Costa, uh, I'm assuming you mean Bohashinia, failed a drug test and then came up with an injury to cover it up? Well, considering I'd, I'd have to have some evidence to suggest such a claim, no. 
if you're asking, am I allowed to be skeptical that someone can look like that in a USADA era uh, with a weird sort of stomach virus medication thing that doesn't make a lot of sense, absent uh, greater information, which you're not entitled to because of privacy laws, sure, skepticism away. But you want to make a claim about something in this world, you've got to have evidence for it. Luke, do you think McGregor losing to Donald Cerrone would benefit the fighters more so than if he wins? Well, that's interesting. Would benefit the fighters more. Now, what does that mean? Um, you could make the argument that it would not be because McGregor could potentially retire or that interest in the sport could go down. If McGregor's not active and winning, so in which case that's not good for the fighters. I tend to think there might be a little something to that, but I would probably side with instead McGregor losing to Cerrone. Um, yeah, look, if he retired, that wouldn't be great for MMA. And if it's not great for MMA, it's hard to understand how it's great for the fighters, right? So in that sense, sure. But in general, over time, I don't think that the fighters' lives are materially changed by a win or a loss with Cerrone. I mean, obviously Cerrone's life, depending on what happens, could take dramatic turns. But um, in general, I don't – again, over the long term. Short term, maybe it hurts them. But over the long term, I don't think it makes so much of a difference. I mean, if you're Song Yudong, is your life materially changed if Connor loses to Cerrone? Maybe, but I don't know. Hard to see. Right now, if you're somebody who also is like a uh, you know, Joanna has been in title fights, for example, on uh, you know Conor McGregor card, so have some other fight fighters. You know, and you get a cut of the pay per view, and the and that guy's out there drawing, that could hurt you. Yeah, so I think in general, either somewhere neutral to negative, especially in the short run, but over the long term, you know, the the, the sport will roll on as it has. It seems that way, especially now with all the volatility of the business model being majorly reduced and um connor's been you know out of action for a long time anyway so i just think over the long term it doesn't play that much of a role that much um thoughts on what justin gaethje should do next wait out habib and tony or press for connor if he wins man <laughs> i don't know i actually asked him about this um the, the interview was here on the channel I'll try to go back through and edit it in up at the top here. I'll see if I can put it back in, but because um, I'm doing this live, obviously. But um, let me make sure everything looks all right, by the way, because I'm not even checking to see if shit's looking right. Okay. Yeah, I think that it is. Um, let's see. Yeah, okay, okay. Everything looks good. Get some subscribe button going action here. Um, well, you got Dustin sitting out there. That's kind of the interesting one, right? He could try and avenge that loss, maybe, when Dustin comes back. But that's risky, right? Because he feels like he's entitled to a title shot, so he just wants to wait. But I don't think he wants to wait forever. So one option is he just wants to wait to see what happens with Khabib and Tony. So I, look, here's what I would do if I was him. Dustin's not going to be ready in January. He's not going to be ready in January. He was here at UFC DC. He was drinking at the bar. I don't know what he was drinking. It looked like some kind of delicious beer. I don't know. But... Um, He's kind of just seeing what's up right now. And Connor fights next month, right? So wait and see what happens there.
because if Connor wins and looks terrible, but like somehow finds a way to get it, you know, get the dub, you know, maybe they're not going to be chomping at the bit to make a fight between him and and Khabib. Or maybe Connor wins and says, "I want Masvidal next." Or maybe Connor loses. Like you got to just see. I know he feels like because it's at 170, it doesn't have any implications for 155. And we've had this conversation. Maybe it shouldn't, but it, in all likelihood, it will. So you got to wait and see what happens there and then make a judgment call about which way you want to go. Um, because until then, it's just not really clear. You could be an alternate for Khabib Tony. Uh, you could take a rematch with Dustin Poirier, uh, potentially. You could just wait until Khabib Tony happens, assuming that Khabib wins, and then wait until Khabib Connor happens, and then you could just sit out the whole year, which I suspect he doesn't want to do. Um, you got to you got to feel out what you got to just. There needs to be clarity about what Connor's next step is, and until there is, he simply can't make a judgment call about it. So, that's what I would say. Hold your horses, stay calm. Let's see what happens there. How do you feel Korean Zombie matches up with Volkanovski? I appreciate what the City Kickboxing Boys are doing. How can you not? However, Zombie has improved dramatically since his return, and it's flown somewhat under the radar. Thoughts on his title chances in 2020? What an excellent question. What an excellent question. Um, Yes, I do think there are some interesting ways he could match up. Very much so. Very much so. One of the reasons why I said that Volkanovski, and the people said this wasn't true, it is absolutely true. One of the reasons why I said that, uh, this is another thing, Max needs time to to, to, to really get that game plan right. He can do it. He, He might, in fact... It might be, he might be like Thanos. I am inevitable. We'll see. But here's what I mean. One thing you see a lot of people try to do with Volkanovsky is uh, as he sets an angle and he approaches uh, or he intercepts, they try to punch him in the head. Right? It's a very common response. Some kind of a jab, some kind of a cross, some kind of a hook, some kind of a combo. If you guys haven't noticed his defense standing in terms of blocking and in terms of slipping is excellent. He either blocks punches coming his way, he leans out the, off the center line when he is throwing, he slips when they come in. He is very, very good at that, which is why Holloway's late adjustment to the body was very smart. That's one thing that I suspect in the rematch you're going to see a lot of. Now, what do, why do I think that's important? That's one adjustment that he made that Korean Zombie could take advantage of. Second, you saw that knee up the middle that he landed, I think somewhere in the second round or so, maybe a little bit later in the fight, speaking of Max Holloway. That is a linear attack for a guy who is, even if he leans off the center line, you can knee him to the body. You also saw him try to go for that right uppercut. Again, talking about Max Holloway. I think one time it landed, a bunch of times it missed, but it got very, very close a lot. That's another weapon I'd be looking at in the future to see how things go, especially if he's from that southpaw stance and he's got it with the lead um, versus just the rear uppercut, which might be a little bit faster, a little bit shorter distance to travel. In any event, if you haven't noticed, look at what some of the punches were that caught Frankie Edgar. Going into that fight, if you listen to my radio show, the my assessment was, one, if Edgar doesn't get the takedown or establish a takedown threat, his striking is much more, um, it's much less of a threat. His, the threat of his strikes comes from the mixing of the takedown and the takedown threat, which zombie stuffed, and then uh, the linear attacks, the uppercut. He is very good about putting combinations together, Korean Zombie. He has good um, uh, linear attacks up the middle. He is good about uh, accuracy. Obviously, his finishing instincts are great. Why do I bring this up? Because 
someone like him who's got fast hands, who has accurate punching, who has linear attacks, who's got good boxing, who can go to the body if he needs it. Now, I realize that those uppercuts on Edgar went to the head, uh, but he can make those adjustments. Those are there for him. Those are there for him. Max Holloway, when he is on and flowing, tends to go 80 to 85% of his strikes to the head. Now, that doesn't mean he can't go to the body. It doesn't mean the body is some kind of like weird foreign place for him, but it's not his first instinct. His first instinct is to go for the head. The numbers clearly show that to be true. That was a bit of a problem for him in the Volkanovsky fight because he kept trying to go and find the head, and it just wasn't there. It was hard for him. Um, with someone who, got, who has the good boxing and the adjustments possible, like um, Zombie and the linear attacks that Zombie has, that makes for a very interesting matchup. The second thing I'd point out is, and you raise it quite rightly in the question, this is why this question is so good, is that if you started watching Korean Zombie around like the Roop fight or what he had been doing in the, some of the smaller Korean shows or the, uh, I think it was the first Leonard Garcia fight, he got the name because he just would keep his head in the middle, eat a big punch and just kind of keep coming. And, you know, he had some tricks up his sleeve, but a good offense, but he has become a dramatically different fighter. He is so matured now as a talent. The boxing is a big part of that. The 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 finishing instincts were always there, but they've been very much refined. He's patient with his offense. Man, he is a handful. And like the Korean zombie nickname is so cool, it should never go away. I don't want it to go away, but it doesn't really tell you the story of this guy anymore. It's not. That's not really what he. What I would like when he stands out to me. That's not what you. You don't know him for a guy who just kind of wings punches. You know, if he gets a hold of you, he can do nasty things. But. Um, you know, he just can take a big punch. I'm sure he can take a big punch. You know, that elbow he just didn't see from your ear coming. But that that name that he got was from just the, the that, that dude is gone. He doesn't fight that way anymore, you know? Um, so, yeah, I actually think that Volkanovski versus Korean Zombie could be very, very interesting. At the same time, if you're Volkanovski and his team, one thing that you learned was that they had scouted Max Holloway in extraordinary detail. They're going to scout Korean Zombie in extraordinary detail as well and probably try to take away a lot of those weapons. So, you know, how would it go? I don't know, but I'd be very curious to find out. Uh, who does Justin fight next? We've kind of been over this one. Oh, last one. He could get the winner if he really wanted of Felder and Hooker. That's another possibility. So we'll have to see. True false. We don't do as many as we used to do in MMA fighting. True false. John Jones is fighter of the decade. The answer for that one is to, for me is yes. I mean, Demetrius Johnson has two losses at bantamweight, then one a draw at flyweight, and then a loss at flyweight. John has none of those things. Um, they both have close fights because you can say the Miguel Torres fight should have gone to Miguel Torres versus Demetrius Johnson. If you really wanted to, you could say that about the first uh, Gustafson fight, something like that. So it's a bit of a wash there. Um, but I know some folks are like, oh, what about PEDs? What about them? I think you know a lot of the guys that John fought were on them too, so... You know, I know a lot of, there's just, I can't convince a lot of people with that, I realize. So if you wanted it to be Demetrius, I think you could. I don't know who else could be too. Khabib wasn't even fighting in the UFC or a Zufa-backed organization in 2010. Um, uh, Cormier was, but Cormier obviously has the losses to the guy, John Jones. So for me, it's John Jones, but your mileage may vary. Rory Lawler 2 is fight of the decade. Um... It's up there. It's up there. I would say Lawler-Condit was more of a memorable fight for me. Lawler and Rory had like this cinematic appeal with it, with it stare down and everything. And the fight itself was obviously amazing. But Lawler-Condit was the one that I always think about. But that's just, you know, again, that's that one very arguable, certainly. 
Jorge knocking out Askren is KO of the decade. Well, it's definitely KO of the year. Um, I don't know if it's KO of the decade. I have to look at all the... De- There's been a lot of KOs in the last 10 years. Certainly the one this year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Your thoughts on Bader versus uh, Bader Hari. Um, I said Bader. Bader versus Rico. Is there another move in combat? Is there another move in combat sports? As that's as live, live or die as the spinning wheel kick? Is there another move in combat sports that's as live or die as the spinning wheel kick? It's claimed so many victims. Um, live or die. I don't know. A lot, a lot of Yeah, you know what? How about Masakazu Imanari? Right? He either gets the heel hook or the knee bar. Or he just gets pounded into oblivion, right? The old, you know, everyone talks about the Imanari rule. Masakazu Imanari, bro, he ain't trying to go out there and strike with you. He's not trying to figure out, you know, how your clinch game is. He's diving for your legs, and either he gets the heel hook or he gets KO'd, basically. It's kind of how it goes. And, uh, you know, God bless him for it. That's a hard way to fight, but he seems to love it. So I would say that. But in thoughts on the fight itself, I thought Glory did a phenomenal job making that a big fight. I thought they were so good at that. I thought they were amazing. A shame it ended the way they did because they had he had Rico in trouble. He had him on skates, dropped him twice. Um, and then you saw the ratings. It did a 53 share. So of all the live television audiences in the Netherlands, 53% of them were watching this fight. I mean, that's crazy. No, I mean, that's... Man, if you live in a major market in this country and you your your local team is doing a ten share, that's very good. Like even an eight share in certain cases can be really good. Uh, you're doing a fifty three share nationwide. Granted, not the biggest you know country in the world, but still, you know, a Dallas Cowboys game might do a twenty or thirty share um, for America's team, and that's in the Dallas market. I mean, that's that's very very high. And you did a fifty three share, like double that. That's crazy good number. That's insane. That's insanely high. So congratulations. They did a really good job. Uh, hi, Luke. How have you felt about Rogan's commentary in 2019? Yeah, I've been over this one. Um, who does TKZ fight next? Heard some rumors that he broke his hand. TKZ versus Max, then Zabit. Yeah, that's the one thing you got to kind of figure out there. It's like Zabit is, hasn't been in a five-round fight, so you're like, your first five-round fight is going to be a title fight. That's a little weird. And then you're like, well, Korean Zombie needs to get his eye fixed. I kind of would like to see Zabit versus Yair because Yair has the win over Korean Zombie, but then Korean Zombie got the win over Moicano and then got the win over um, Edgar, and he was winning the Yair fight before he just kind of lost it the last second there, which I'm not taking away from Yair. It was like he intended to throw it, and it landed, and that win is his rightfully. I'm just saying, like, since he came back in 2017, Korean Zombies looked very good. Um and then had a you know that win over Edgar you know as ill advised as it was uh, him taking that fight, um, it was it was great it was a great win man it was a super great win so uh, so I, I guess Zabit versus Yair and then I from there we can kind of figure it out but it has to be a five round fight no three round fight you got to figure out whether Zabit can go the distance and. How that might go, and then yeah, you could do Korean Zombie versus Max, assuming that the timelines work out. Sure, um, but for sure, Zabit versus Yair. That's I think that's an interesting one. All right, next. Uh, great to see True Jordy shout you out on his Christmas Day podcast. Well, that's very nice of him. 
Any chance you'd ever go on his podcast, assuming he would and has asked you? Well, uh, he's never asked, but why would he? Because he gets very famous people on there, which I am not. True Jordy is great, man. Uh, that dude's awesome. I, I didn't know much about him. I just sort of discovered him through YouTube. And uh, I didn't even know what a Jordy was until I had to look it up. But um, he his success to me is not accidental at all. If you guys don't know who he is, he's like this big burly dude from uh, England. He's like all covered in tattoos, but he seems like he's naturally hilarious, gregarious, fun to talk to, loves combat sports. He had done, if you're not familiar, he had done, I think, uh, some official production work around the first KSI and uh, Logan Paul fight, which, you know, as a YouTuber, he's kind of all in on, um, but, uh, you know, whatever the merits of that fight, but um, he also does like this, uh, I forget the name of it, kickoff, I think he does with uh, a bunch of his friends for like Premier League games and they all get around and like react to the games in real time and dude his numbers are like off the charts they're so huge uh, I think he's well past a million subscribers and he's done it very quickly it's not a surprise to me he's very very easy to listen to he's got a dynamic way of speaking he's very honest um, he's uh, self-deprecating when he needs to be stands his ground when he needs to be he's got this co-host forgive me I don't know his name but um they're a good pair because he's like this big dude, and then the, the co-host is like, looks like he just, you know, <laughs> I mean, he seems like a very nice guy. I'm sure he's cool, but it looks like he just, you know, he, he goes to art school, and uh, so it's a good contrast, you know? It's like Chewbacca and Han Solo or something. In any event, uh, he's awesome. He's awesome. His success is all deserved. Couldn't say more nice things about him. And, uh, well, I'm, I'm glad he said nice things about me because uh, I didn't know who he was. You know, he lives in, in England, and I just discovered him through YouTube, and I was like, well, this guy's interesting. And, uh, yeah, I try to catch as much of his content as I can. Again, all, you know, limits on my day. What are some of your favorite philosophies, philosophers that you have studied and applied to your life? Any books you would recommend to begin to learning philosophy? Um, love the live chat. Uh, any books you would recommend to begin learning philosophy? Jeez. Um, well, anybody would probably tell you some of, you know, uh, the great works, you know, um, Uh, Jesus, where do I even start with this? I mean, you could start with, uh, <laughs> Jesus, you could start with various works by Plato, by Aristotle, if you really wanted to, to, to read them. Um, you could go, you know, Nicomachean Ethics, you could go Nietzsche, you could go Buber, you could go Schopenhauer, you could go, uh, a lot of different directions. I'll say this, um... It's, you know, if you want to read the original great texts, certainly it's a, I, I would recommend it, but it's not for everybody. For me, the philosopher, I don't really, like, I don't, you know, like, I studied it in college, but I'm not, like, some academic who spends his life uh, pouring over these, these details. So for me, if I can explain what the philosophy degree did for me was it helped me begin to sort good information from bad, which, of course, you will still get wrong uh, fairly commonly. Uh, but if you have some tools, it puts you in a better position to make the judgment calls versus other ones. Um, I, I always felt like when I got to college that I didn't, I, like someone would make a good argument, another person would make a contrasting argument, and I really had a hard time discerning who had the better argument. I mean, if it was like, you know, a ridiculous one versus a good one, okay, but what if you had two good arguments? How do you really distill what's there? And these are all eternal questions that never get resolved, but it at least helps my brain sort what mattered to me and what I thought had a greater evidentiary basis or what should be um, a greater 
higher order concern. The biggest, the biggest revelatory class is actually my toughest class, if I can be honest with you. Um, I ended up doing well in it, but only by virtue of having to... I did poorly at first. I think the first four to six weeks, I really struggled. And then it had a sort of a eureka moment, and it all kind of clicked. But um, philosophy of science. Now, that might sound kind of ridiculous to you. Like, what is philosophy of science? Philosophy of science is arguably, I would, I would submit to you, the most important branch of philosophy. You know, you can get into your, your logician stuff, if P, then Q, and advanced symbolic logic where you're having to write out and prove axioms. And um, Well, axioms are essentially self, self-proving, self but you have to sort of, you have to write them out and map them. And that can be quite difficult as a challenge. There are other kinds of, you know, uh, normative questions about ethics. But philosophy of science was really the most interesting one, which was grounded to me in questions related to uh, David Hume's inductive and deductive reasoning, um, which is, you know, I don't have time to get into. I want to get to more of these questions. But uh, I ended up reading works uh, by uh, Philip Kitcher and um, God, what was, it? was it Thomas Kuhn? Kuhn spelled K-U-H-N. Is that what his first name was? Oh, Christ, did I lose? Oh, my, my thing went dead. Well, I'll have to look it up later. You know what? Let me look it up on my phone. My, my keyboard literally just went dead. That's fun. Let's see. Thomas Kuhn, who I believe wrote The Nature of Scientific Revolutions. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I actually, I don't know if he wrote that. Um, actually, and he's part of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is online and free for everybody. You can go look that up so you can answer some basic, uh, bigger questions there. But uh, long story short, that was so helpful for me in really forming my worldview because there's no set right or wrong principle there. That's not what it's about. It's about um, how do scientists know what they know, what makes a theory a theory, um, how do you go from a paradigm where you understand the world in this way, you incorporate new information, and now this becomes a new paradigm. How does that replacement occur? Why does it occur? Uh, and what is the value of this? Now, that might sound like nothing to you, or at least very in the weeds. Dude, that was one of the most interesting and important classes in what is knowledge? How do you know? Uh, what do you do with new knowledge? How do you test it? What is the evidentiary basis by which you incorporate it? How does a paradigm that has this explanatory value then change things for other parts of this web of world information? That that was absolutely critical. Philosophy of science to me was the one. Do I have my old professor's book? So, my favorite professor was, uh, he teaches at William & Mary, obviously, where I went, um, Paul Sheldon Davies, Norms of Nature. This is not an easy read. Here is essentially the premise of the book. He was a philosopher of science as well. He, I mean, he could do more than that, but he was a philosopher of science. And uh, one of the key arguments that he makes here is you often hear people speak of what the digestive system is designed to do, what the eye is designed to do. And uh, he essentially argues in great detail here that 
Um, you can't actually say that it was designed to do that unless you believe in intelligent design. If you believe in evolutionary biology, then the way in which you have to understand how the eye evolved is a function of its uh, the system of which it is a part of and a system in which it is in relation to other systems inside the organism. Because otherwise, you're simply making an argument for cloaked design. Anyway, it's the, the, this is in the weeds, I certainly understand. Norms of, <clears throat> the book is called Norms of Nature, um, Naturalism and the Nature of Functions. And again, I'm not telling you you need to read this and it'll change your life, but this is the kind of questions, and you can see he's got the eye here on the cover because that's a big component of it. Um, these kinds of questions, when you have the skills and the understanding of information and what constitutes valuable information and how to apply it, when you have those skills, you can answer questions like this. Uh, among a broader set of other questions as well. It's not simply about scientific expertise, although having a degree of scientific and biological literacy helps. It's about literacy of processing, storing, categorizing, synthesizing, and then implementing information um, in a helpful way to understand the natural world. So yeah. Put on your prognostication hat and tell me, is 2020 on paper potentially the best year ever in the UFC? Well, the first, second quarter looks like it's going to be a banger. Multiple counter fights, Zhang Wiley for a Chinese market, which, you know, we all know. Khabib stranglehold on Russia. Stylebender continue to be transcendent. Masvidal, Diaz brothers. Yeah, Diaz brothers, we'll see. John Jones, not to mention the abundance of upcoming talent in every division besides uh, women's featherweight. Yeah. Um... Certainly, it looks like we or we or we're setting up for a strong year. And to your point, like raised earlier, if Conor McGregor does well, that can't hurt, right? It's really good, usually good for MMA when Conor is around and winning. Typically, I think typically that's true. Uh, okay, there's some weird questions here. Do I really want to get into this one? Why don't you think Ben Shapiro is a good political commentator? On most occasions, when hearing him speak, he comes up with valid points. All right. Some people really objected to some of the political stuff last week, so I'll make this very brief. Um, it's shocking to me that you can <laughs> Okay. Um, he is a polemicist, right? Which in and of itself is not that big. It's not, it's not, it's not a problem. It's not by virtue of his occupation that um, you can't get anything from it. In many ways... Some of the things that I do are polemical in nature. Many, many of the things I do are polemical in nature. So I, I sort of understand what he's up against um, all the time. But if, if I'll just I'll just put it this way: pick any issue that you really care about. Um, campus activism, uh, immigration, uh, trade, uh, taxation, the role of the security state, privacy, whatever. This is probably true for a lot of polemicists, and even in MMA, it's probably true about whether or not you should consult me. But he's just got nothing to say about any of them. Like, if I was, if I was really looking, and again, I'm not asking you to not like right-wing views. I have pointed out many people who had them. Some people mistakenly thought I said Nozick was not right-wing. He's not, but he provides the philosophical underpinnings of a libertarian worldview, which is, you know, right adjacent, depending on, well, depending on one's perspective, I suppose. But point being is this. Um, 
in any of those particular situations, I couldn't imagine going to him for information about it rather than somebody who might cohere with your worldview but has direct experience with those things who is readily available. You're getting it distilled through... If you want something distilled through a person, you would have to ask what about it that they're... What, what act in the distillation are you... Like what value is there in the distillation? And if you're somebody who grew up... I mean, before he was even... I think even at Harvard, he was writing stuff for like World Net Daily and Town Hall, totally bereft of any real value in these columns. Certainly, I'm not saying he's not a bright guy. You know, obviously, uh, his post-secondary education speaks to that fact. But then there's been no time in the real world spent trying to master any of these topics. Rather, what he does is simply reflect back in a very polemicized way things that you may already agree with. But if you really drill down into the details of what he's saying, no subject matter expert, A, I think a lot of them would probably disagree, and B, couldn't do a significantly better job of actually informing you of what that might be. So whenever you find someone who is a polemicist or or is polemical in nature, that's okay, depending on the nature of it. So like, um, let me give an example of a different what I think would be a different case. Um, let's say, let me think. So for example, I will read uh, Task and Purpose. Task and Purpose is a magazine that is designed for maybe active duty, but a lot of veterans for keeping up with military uh, changes, military talk. Um, when I say talk, I mean what's happening in the American military, what's the news, how do we understand it. And the people there will be of two different varieties. One, it'll be a lot of different veterans who are now, uh, or you know, obviously they're out of the military, but they're speaking about what are the Pentagon's choices about purchasing these weapon systems and, and not uh, phasing out artillery as the Marine Corps is really a good idea. Should they be an amphibious force going forward? Or you'll get somebody like, um, I think he works for foreign policy now, but you'll get like someone like Thomas Ricks. Thomas Ricks didn't serve in the American military, but has spent a career uh, trying to cover military affairs for various publications, including Task and Purpose, for some time. So he didn't even serve there, but and, and he'll give you his opinion. I mean, that's a lot of what he does. He doesn't, doesn't do much reporting that I'm aware of anymore. But it's but it's somebody who like was in the trenches, either quite literally or metaphorically speaking, around a particular subject matter, rather than I'm going to just be this guy who is this place for. I'm just going to I'm going to pair it back to you. Um, you know, fire and brimstone about a particular worldview absent any real expertise in any of it. Like, that's what you want to spend your time doing? Okay, if you don't have a whole lot of time, you have to go to one source to get all of it. Okay, but I would rather hear from, I'd rather get the nuance of it from somebody who uh, spent time working in the industry rather than just working as a polemicist and then verifying that. Also, like, dude, if your whole bit is just dunking on undergrads, I don't know what is supposed to be impressive about that. You know, let's go, you're going just going to you know, trigger undergrads? Like, dude, they, they don't, they're not subject matter experts. Like, there's no, that, that's just a, magic, a magician's trick. It's just sleight of hand. And that's really, I mean, it's, that's, to me, that's very, let's just low-rent shit. Uh, it's shocking to me that you actually pay $100 for a haircut. In my bumfuck town, we pay $12. Well, again, it's 80 plus the tip, so let's get, it, get that right. But okay, folks seem to understand this. I'm not telling you that the haircut is worth $80. Like in, no, in fact, let me declare it to you. The haircut is not worth $80. It's not. It's not an $80 haircut in the sense of what you think it might look like. I'm not paying $80 for the haircut. I'm paying them for a haircut... 
they're using that money to pay their people and the rent. If you didn't notice this or you didn't know it, let me help you. Washington, D.C. in 2018 passed Los Angeles in places to live as the fifth most expensive city in the country. Child care in Washington, D.C. is the most expensive uh, in the city, which is why when you go to like a daycare, dude, our child care services are more than my mortgage. And my mortgage ain't cheap. It is outrageously expensive to live here. Uh, very, very, it's not cheap. You're not paying for, you know, what are they cutting your hair with, you know, the most refined technique ever or with golden scissors or some shit, you know, and then give <laughs> and then blowing you at the end of it. It's not what, it's not what's happening. You're just paying because it's expensive to have a business here where that business has to pay rent. That's it. That is, that is the sum total of understanding what it means to do to get an $80 you know, or $100 haircut with tax. I'm not telling you it's the world's best haircut. I'm telling you that the places that charge less than that, because the cheaper one would have been Grooming Lounge, which is down on L or K, L, uh, like L and 19th, and they were like 50 or 60. But dude, do you understand how expensive real estate is down there? It's crazy expensive. It's so expensive. And then the other place I go to is, uh, you know, I won't give it away. It's another place in Northwest. So DC is divided into quadrants. The French kind of built a lot of it. So it's got Northeast, Southeast, Northwest, Southwest. Northwest is the most expensive quadrant. So all the haircutting places, all the businesses tend to be there because that's where all the, that's where all the shops are. That's where a lot, that's where Georgetown is. That's where a lot of, dude, you're paying for the real estate. I don't know how else to explain this to people. I'm not telling you that you can't get a good haircut for $12. I am certain that you can. If I was in your town, I would go get that. Here is my challenge to everybody. Now, the black barbershops, I don't know. That might be that might be the 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 fact that I, they, they might charge less and they might do a phenomenal job. I don't know. I, I don't tend to go to those kinds of establishments. Maybe I should. I just haven't. But take take the Pepsi. I said the same thing I said to Brian Campbell. Take the Pepsi challenge. Come to Washington D.C., not Northern Virginia. Not Maryland, city proper. Show me where you can get a good haircut for men for less than $50. Show me. You can get some for 20. They're going to fuck your shit up. <laughs> I've had that from experience. They will, they will absolutely butcher your hair. So I'm trying to go as cheap as I can. I, 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 you know, I used to shave my head for years just so I didn't have to pay for haircuts. But bro, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. So again, maybe I need to check out some of the African-American businesses, see what's up with that. I've heard some good things about their beer trimming abilities, you know? So, you know, get a two-for-one kind of thing there. But, bro, I'm not telling you it's a great cut. I'm telling you, it is the city, you know, your nation's capital is crazy expensive. Uh, what time is it? 106. Let's go to some of these questions that I didn't get a chance to get to. Off the chat rev... Ah, there we go. I didn't know you could do that. I'm going to try something here and see if it works. All right, let's go to... Okay, questions from Ethan. From Scotland and fellow football fan, I think you mean... 
I know what you mean. I'm saying not American football, but world football. What matches or derbies are on your bucket list? Celtic versus Rangers is the best atmosphere I have personally experienced. Sunderland versus Newcastle was also decent. Well, Celtic versus Rangers or Celtic. I'm not sure that people say it over there. Uh, that would be a good one. Let me, let me take off. I want to unpin this. Unpin the merchandise. I'm going to. I'm going to pin this one instead. Pin that. Pin this. There we go. Um, but you know, it's gotta be, it's gotta be, uh, it's gotta be El Clasico for me. And I realize there's a bunch of different ones. My wife was like, oh yeah, when Mijanarios play, uh, uh, Santa Fe in Bogota, that's El Clasico. I'm like, well, y'all can call it that, but that ain't it. Um, so yeah, Barcelona versus Madrid at the Santiago Bernabeu. I don't want it to go in. Dude, I've, I've been to Camp Nou. It's not that nice. Sorry, and by the way, they charge twenty bucks for uh, even if you bring your you know your baby in there. Just want, want to point that out. Like, um, kids don't tour for free there. Camp New is not awesome, which I know they're building a, or they got designs on building a new one. They need to because that shit is a jalopy. Although the city of Barcelona is awesome, why do I see very little celebration about Brendan Schaub's success? Are you kidding? He's been incredibly influential in bringing diverse and original content to MMA, despite. Like this, he's treated like a Tito and kind of dismissed by MMA outlets. Who cares? Let them have their say. They're allowed to have. I'm not one of these guys who's like out here trying to censor all these MMA sites from saying uncritical things about people I like. Say it. I don't care. Uh, but there's plenty of celebration. Trust me, in Showtime's offices, there's plenty. And um, even if the, you know, even if the MMA diehards don't particularly care for him, the largest audience that likes MMA is the casual one and best I can tell um, they seem to think that as a you know when you measure how fighters do after their careers not a whole lot do better than Brendan in a fight between Gaethje and Khabib if Gaethje can keep the fight in the middle of the cage how does this improve his chances of winning I mean substantially and how likely is it that he'd be able to do this well that's the million dollar question isn't it I tend to think that um We've only ever seen Habib get the takedown, basically. I mean, not every time, right? He's a, he gets half of them, but that's t- that tends to be all he ever needs. So we'd have to see. But that I mean, you're, you're asking the fundamental question. Like, I would say this. If Gaethje can keep that fight standing, I don't see any way he loses. If he can't, I don't see any way he wins. It's really the same kind of question for everybody, but in, in particular Gaethje, because you th- there's, there's a belief that he might have that ability to actually do that, right? Was wondering if the Sakula's Harry Dunn scenario has been in the U.S. news. Not to my knowledge. Sakula's is the wife of a U.S. official who claimed diplomatic immunity after driving on the wrong side of the road and killing a U.K. teenager. Should she be sent back to face justice? Oh, right. Um, fuck, that's a difficult question. I, well, one, I could tell you it's not making much rounds here in the news. I, the first I've heard of it, candidly. Secondly, um, we had a similar situation here where I think there was, I might get the details wrong about this, I believe a Czech diplomat's son drunk driving and killed someone, and he got sent back to the Czech Republic, or maybe it was Czechoslovakia at the time, I can't remember, but uh, didn't face any criminal penalty. I mean, diplomatic immunity is supposed to be diplomatic immunity, right? 
That's terrible. Jesus. It's really terrible. I did, I did not know about this. Um, ugh, horrible. Hope to hear some misery index on the show one day. Yeah, maybe. Is Conor McGregor overrated or underrated? He is both. Conor McGregor exists in this weird position where his detractors can't acknowledge he's actually very good. And so they say he's S, he's, he can't do this, he can't fight that, he can't add the blah, 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 blah. They are clearly underrating him. On the other hand, you have Conor McGregor supporters who think the guy walks on water. He, you know, the fight with Habib was close or, you know, uh, he really gave it to Mayweather or whatever. Like, you know, people are just not in touch with reality. In that case, he's overrated. Really, if you're asking me, is he an elite or at his best, was he an elite special talent? I mean, there can simply be no denial. Go back and watch that Eddie Alvarez fight. I had to watch it the other day for a um, for a um, a uh, the tape study I do for for dissected the morning combat dissected. Man, I mean, we all saw that in real time, right? I mean, it was amazing. Dude, go back and watch that shit. Like Connor looked unbelievable. You know, the question is, is that guy still around? Hard to tell against Habib because Habib makes everybody look bad. Cerrone, we'll have to see. If he is, you know, I think a lot of the Conor McGregor is overrated folks are going to have to eat some crow. To me, I think he should win that. And if he doesn't, well, then you got some problems. Then he might be overrated. But, uh, but um, yeah, man, I mean, the guy is a very special, very, very elite talent beyond just what he does at the box office. He's very, very good. Luke, tagging on to your Rogan, Rogan comments, where do you think the MMA-centric podcast fit into the media narrative? It is important that... It is uh, non-ESPN UFC owned. Yeah, I think it's very important that it's not ESPN owned because I think the content there is going to be censored and not going to reflect reality. So it needs to be outside of that industry. And I would say Rogan is MMA. So I'm much more familiar. I'll put it this way. Um, I don't listen to the regular one, but I know he bifurcated the podcast. So now he's got like the celebrity or the, the normal one. And then he's got the MMA one. It may want to hear a little bit more from because uh, my producers will take clips from it and we'll play on the show time to time. Uh, we did it recently, right? When he, had, I think he had on Max. So I do hear that more than often. Let me make a bit of an addendum to there. I think those are really important. He gets a lot of people to have long conversations that open up. He gets access to a lot of fighters. A lot of us don't. Um, yeah, he's really important in that regard. And uh, that kind of thing he does... He's given life to the idea of alternative media. Here's another example. Going back to him, True Jordy. He's another one. Now, True Jordy will tell you, I'm not insulting the guy. True Jordy will tell you he's a bit of a McGregor fanboy. I think he had a bit of a issue with the old man being punched in the head. But in general, you know, he speaks from the fans' experience in a very hearted uh, or full-throated and, and uh, um, heartfelt way. Um, it's important that that's outside the ecosystem of what can be controlled by UFC or ESPN, and you're asking, where do you think his MMA-centric podcast fit into the media narrative? Dude, it tends to drive the news cycle, right? In no small part because his opinion matters, I think, to a lot of people, and he has on guests who, when they say things, it carries significant weight and has a large audience. Yeah, it's very important. Luke, I'm a relatively new MMA fan, but you are the reason why I'm picking... I'm only reading this because the person put on 75 pounds. Not put on, but like paid. Like, uh, you're the reason why I'm picking it up quickly from all your breakdowns and analysis over the last couple of years. I appreciate you, bro. Wish you and the people here a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Well, thank you. This person is Aziz 
Al-Hakim. Well, thank you, Aziz. I really appreciate that. That's incredibly kind and generous of you. And I'm glad to see that there is a benefit in uh, helping nurture your MMA fandom. Thumbs up to you, bro. Can I and the public attain the judges' scorecards to a UFC bout that ends in a finish? I saw in your Rodriguez versus Stevens what this fight means video that you showed the scorecards for the Zombie versus Rodriguez fight. Where did you get that? Um, the UFC will send... So sometimes you don't have to be credentialed for it. But um, a lot of times, if let's say you get credentialed for an event, they'll send you the scorecards no matter what, whether the fight went to a decision or if it gets stopped, where all the judges were in the rounds previous. And they'll just send it to you. They'll send you a copy. So try to find any MMA media member who's either there or tweets that kind of stuff routinely. Uh, I know MMA decisions won't necessarily have that kind of stuff, which is a great site, but it's got limits in that particular regard. So pay attention to that stuff. Um, but hold on. But that's a great way to get some good information. Um, they send it out. They just send it out to everybody. So what was the last event? It was uh, the Korean zombie event, yeah? I got all oh, my inboxes just filled with them. PFL does the same thing, I think. Uh, I don't know if Bellator does. If they do, they don't send it to me. But yeah, for sure UFC does. For sure. Can you break down Cyril? Is it Cyril Gain or Cyril Gane? I can never, I never know. Cyril Gaines? Gans? Striking? Um, yes, I need to take a look at it in detail, but he appears to be amazing, right? The genuine article at, uh, at, 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 at heavyweight, he appears to be incredibly talented. So I would love to do that in great detail. We'll see. Um, all right, let me get back and see if there's any more I can just burn through here very quickly. Blah, 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 blah. Pettis versus Carlos Fajera seems to be flying under the radar. Thoughts on that? Yeah, you do. Ever since Fajera lost to Poirier, I think a lot of people have not taken him seriously. Before that, he was very much taken seriously. You know, he beat, um, who's the ultimate fighter kid who won? Um, Chris McRae, very, very quickly, you know. And Pettis, I think, I think we all kind of saw in that Ferguson fight, uh, rather in the, in the uh, Diaz fight, the reason why he got picked is because he's very tough early. And yes, against Thompson, he kind of, you know, kind of rallied back, but he's taken a lot of damage. He tends to back up. He tends to fade in fights now as he's getting a little bit older and long in the tooth. And those guys at Fortis MMA, bro. Not to be trifled with. That's a very competitive fight, if you ask me. How many buys does 246 do? I would imagine the return of Conor McGregor with that much buildup is going to do a million plus. Hard to know. All right, we'll end on this one because it was part of the thing. Oh, you know what? There's two more I'll end on. Rise of Skywalker, was it that bad? Definitely need clarification on that. If you like Transformers and you think Transformers is good is good, or you like Fast and the Furious, and I don't mean like, oh, I like to put on Fast and the Furious and just chill out or like, Go to the theater drunk or go to the theater high and watch Fast and the Furious. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking like when the movie is over, you're like, wow, that's really good acting. I mean, that plot is just flawless. Then you'll love Rise of Skywalker. If you have a mammalian brain, I don't know how it's possible to think that is good. It is such a shitty movie. And here's the funny part about it. I'm not one of these guys who thinks that, and I realize that this is like, if you didn't like Last Jedi, you're more prone to like Rise of Skywalker. So let me amend that statement. If you are a diehard Star Wars fan and you just can't find a way to dislike their stuff, chances are you'll like this movie too. But if you did like Last Jedi, you'll probably hate this. If you didn't like Last Jedi, you'll, you might like it more because this movie is just a giant middle finger to um, the last movie. And look, I'm not wanna, I don't want to relitigate all of the merits or the, the downfalls and the problems with The Last Jedi. I'm not one of these people. I, I did like the movie, The Last Jedi, 
but I'm not one of these folks who thought it was a flawless movie. The Mary Poppins thing with Leia was weird. Snoke had no development. Um, uh, the 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 ham-handed way in which they treated politics with the casino scene where you freed the animals but you didn't free the kids the, who were the slaves. You know, that was just, it was just weird. And, you know, they went on this long quest and it didn't work. I'm not telling you that movie doesn't have problems. The movie's got problems. But in terms of its main character treatment, it is so much more endlessly interesting than anything in Rise of Skywalker. And all those motherfuckers who, after The Last Jedi, were like, dude, there's so many plot holes in this. And then they come out and say that this movie is like... This is how you craft a movie. Like, bro, you have you have voted yourself off the island of people who who can have opinions about movies they can recommend to everybody for the rest of your life. You are you are off the island. You can't make a claim, a fair claim, that the last Jedi has problems and then say this movie this movie is the antidote to that. Because this movie is riddled with bullshit plot introductions. Uh, and, devi- and, and and devices to just paste over holes that th- they didn't want to address, that they created, um, or, or stuff they didn't want to inherit from the last movie. And uh, it is so obvious. It is so nakedly ridiculous. And anytime the movie had a chance to be interesting, they undercut it immediately. There is an interesting moment with Hux, General Hux. They killed that off. C-3PO, interesting moment, killed off. Kylo Ren, there's an interesting moment, they kill it off. Uh, Chewbacca, there's an interesting moment, they kill it off. Uh, every time they have an interesting moment, that the, the, you're like, wow, that, that really is significant. That could be an interesting way in which to guide this movie. They decide to go in the opposite way. Someone mentioned it to me. Uh, I don't know who it was. Uh, where did I see it? Some movie review I saw. They treated it like it was just a – you guys remember Vines? Was it like seven seconds long? It's just a series of vines stacked on top of each other, all in the interest of cheap fan service, of lazy plot devices, of reheated, old-ass Star Wars fandom. Dude, the one thing, the two things, Ryan Johnson got right in The Last Jedi. One, he got a little too far with it, with the politics stuff, with the whole casino scene, which was a mess. However, the movie is principally about the failure of institutions in modern life, which, hello, mirrors our lives today. We are looking around at the collapse of institutions, and perhaps people wanted Star Wars to be a break from that, but I thought it was actually rather daring that you put that in there. You had believed in all of these systems and these buildings and these places that were just going to take care of you. Well, what happens when they don't? Brilliant. Loved every part of that, okay? And then Kylo Ren, who could just... The other part was, in The Last Jedi... He was really becoming evil and sinister and truly dastardly, whereas in The Force Awakens, he was just some emo shitbag who was listening to too much Morrissey outside of the mall smoking his American spirits. They finally turn him into a very dastardly character in the second movie, only to come full circle with it and turn him into nothing like that in the third one. Which I was just like, what the fuck are you doing? Because he is way more interesting as the emo vader wannabe and then growing into like even a more sinister version of that in the second one plus the other interesting part of it was and it turns out ryan johnson was right when kylo says goodbye to all of it let the past die not merely um snoke 
uh, and the rebellion, but also the First Order, right? Goodbye to all of it. If there is one thing the last movie, this one that just came out, Rise of Skywalker, was proof of, is that they, Star Wars should have ended. <laughs> should have ended. Um, it, it, and obviously, you know, there's other parts of this too where Marvel had planned out all of the stuff with the Avengers uh, MCU and they had coordinated everything, whereas Star Wars just had this baton rally between directors and writers and it ended up just being this completely incoherent mess. So, like, you know, whereas Marvel stuck the landing, Star Wars didn't. There was another problem. But, like, Ryan Johnson, he had a, a million problems in The Last Jedi. But in these core insights where there's, like, infighting in the rebellion and Kylo Ren is really becoming the sinister person. And you've got the death of these institutions. Dude, that is real cinema. That's real character development. That's really something there. That's something there. And I know that makes a lot of Star Wars nerds who just want to see robots in space shoot lasers. It makes them uncomfortable. I get that. I understand that. Fuck those people. I would rather see somebody take some chances, even with a beloved franchise, in an interesting and novel way. But they couldn't do it. They had to go back all the way around and make this safe-ass movie where even in that movie, you know, any time the movie had a chance of being interesting... They shat on it. it, it ridiculous. Ridic oh, and let's just show up to this place where there's a bunch of weird people doing things vaguely. I won't say because I don't want to spoil it. Hey, look, Lando Calrissian is here just randomly where we need to show up. These stupid-ass plot devices, cheap character reintroductions, dumb-ass fan service. It is such a – it's lowest common denominator trash is what that movie is. I walked out of there literally bitter. I couldn't even sleep that last night. The night after I saw it. One, because I'm a fucking nerd. And two, because I'm a loser. And three, because that movie sucked. That movie sucked my will to absolutely live. And anybody who goes, dude, that movie is good, bro, you can write them off for the rest of your life. You can say, I didn't like The Last Jedi, and then also still say, I didn't like Rise of Skywalker, and we're good. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to, I know I'm going to sit here and try to sell people in Last Jedi, and they don't want to hear it. That's fine. I'm not relitigating it. The one line in the sand I will draw is on this one. It is not possible to go in there and come out of it and think, other than being a Star Wars religious nut, it's not possible to be like, wow, that's a well-made movie. They really did, uh, they really put together the plot in an interesting way. There was effective character development. Um, it really built off of something important. It's just reheated. It's frozen dinner food. Star Wars. Throw in the microwave. Two minutes. It's what it is, dude. You can't tell me that's good. You can't. Because that's all it is. It's crap. Uh, Last Jedi. Last Jedi is something that you, you go to a restaurant and you, you, you buy the burger and they took some liberties with it and a lot of it didn't work. You're like, well, I don't know if I really order that again. But on the other hand, the, in taking some of those liberties, some of it kind of came out a little bit interesting, a little bit different. And wow, maybe that could have sparked something to carry into the next uh, next time you try this. That's how I look at it. Nah, you went to a place, you went to Guy Fieri's restaurant in Times Square, and you ordered the, you know, you ordered the the I don't know the ranch covered asparagus, you know, frozen, fucking with donkey sauce. Throw in the microwave, two minutes, come out, scrape it off the TV dinner, and say, eat up. And people are like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. It's great if you're blind, and it's great if you didn't go. That's when it's great. A absolute shit movie. All right, last one, because I think this is actually kind of important. Why are you so obsessed with Kadyrov? Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen uh, military leader. 
I mean, all politicians, dictators, presidents, whatever, suck. Well, that's putting it euphemistically. But you always love to bring up his name for some reason. I find this very hypocrite. I think you mean hypocritical. From somebody who not only is from the U.S., but also served so basically partly responsible for killing (laughs) millions of, millions of, millions of innocent people. Well... Okay, a couple things here. One, that is really rudimentary and, frankly, ridiculous moral reasoning. Um, <clears throat> let me let me say for a couple of reasons. One, any modern nation, particularly one with vast economic and security concerns as the United States or any other comparable-sized country in terms of population, would, or, and far less, actually, would want to have a, a security component of, of the military to take care of its uh, needs. Right, So it's not to say that those institutions, the American military, is free of blame by virtue of its necessity. Far from it. The Malay massacre, the entire war in Iraq, right? There are t- is tons of moral culpability to be had there. But, by ver- but for an organization whose existence is quite literally essential for the uh, peace and security, again, it can be abused beyond that, to claim that membership in that group, having not gone to Iraq, constitutes culpability for... The deaths of millions of others is, to put it mildly, strained to, quite frankly, ridiculous moral reasoning, too. It is not to say that the U.S. is free from blame. Uh, You could look at their help for apartheid in occupied parts of Palestine as evidence of moral culpability. You could look at, even more recently, their assistance with Saudi Arabia for the essential blockade and war on Yemen, which is truly the great Amer- an, an incredible atrocity. How about historically, slavery, the wiping out of Native American populations? These are all belong to the government, which uh, many of us work or have worked for, uh, even as a civil servant. Uh, if you work for the DMV, by the way, you work for the government, and therefore you work for an organization that has that history upon itself. It does raise a series of moral complexities, and it doesn't make these particular states free of blame. In fact, you should say it outright, which is interesting because in this country you actually can, for the most part, right? I mean, I suppose you can do whatever you want, but you are allowed to acknowledge, as I am now doing, the culpability of moral leadership. Uh, for example, during the Obama era's era, uh, the amount of drone strikes that killed thousands, if not more than that, of uh, utterly innocent people. You are allowed to note that this is a state that enslaved um, what is now, you know, um, 10 to 15 percent of its population for um, hundreds of years. You are allowed to note that it has engaged in subterfuge in various other countries. You are allowed to note all of these things. Here's what's funny: if I made these kinds of criticisms about Ramzan Kadyrov while I was in Chechnya, I probably wouldn't be alive for very much longer. So here are two problems with the well. One is the moral confusion about culpability related to the security apparatus of a state, which is an essential part of its existence, number one. Number two, they're neither all bad nor all good. Three, you are allowed, I think, and it is important to say out loud, some of the things that they have done that are incredibly outrageous. How about the atomic bomb? We could could go on for for quite a long while, but in conjunction with the atomic bomb, they also defeated the emperor of Japan as well as Hitler. So it's very morally complicated. But it is one thing to conflate the actions of a state and its historical legacy and it is another to point out individual leadership issues. So if you want to go after Obama for drone strikes, boy, I would encourage you to do that. You'd be well within your right, and you'd be morally correct. You, we're not merely going after the U.S. in the point here. We're going after Ramzan Kadyrov, who is an individual person. As an individual person, I don't know how folks 
I don't know if they're uh, kept up to speed with the particulars of his human rights record. I mean, he has not only, I mean, everyone's sort of known him for more recently the gay purge that he went into where people were ended up missing, where uh, they were tortured, um, some escaped, but um, it was an incredibly repressive society generally, and in particular for those kinds of people. But beyond that, his human rights abuse record goes well back 20 years beyond this. Um, it is believed that he has personally engaged in torture uh, it is believed he has personally ordered uh, the death of individual journalists who have, uh, even uh, other people in his security state who had moved to parts of Europe have been murdered there for speaking out against him. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting that U.S. leadership has nothing to atone for. I don't know that there are enough lifetimes for them to atone for it, but what that man is doing is uniquely worse than all of them. Uh, and if he had more power, he would probably do a lot more. That he is sort of confined to this fiefdom in Chechnya limits the ability of what he has. But even there, it's fairly significant. We're talking about a very bad person, right? And again, that doesn't mean that the other leadership in Western states, Tony Blair could be a war criminal, George Bush could be a war criminal. I mean, we can we can litigate all that. Uh, it doesn't make those things untrue. But I can say that in this society without any problems coming to me. Uh, although then again, you could talk about Guantanamo Bay and the and the and the and the failure of moral leadership there, and I wouldn't even get, have a problem with that either. But I can say those things out loud. We can we can we can have conversations about that without my life being threatened, which is not something I could do if I live there. Moreover, when you talk about the personal hand of depravity and repression and abuse and torture and death that he has had, the documented personal hand, uh, you're just talking about a category of of difference there. They're not the same. So that's why. And then if you're forced to take a picture with that person, which could be the very, could be the case. It could be, people might hate the guy, but just feel like he needs to do it. I, I understand that. But that also is a fact that needs to be examined. Okay. With that out of the way, I have to get going. I have things to do. I appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, let's do this here at the end. Give the video a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. Uh, oops, hold on. Happy holidays to everybody. And uh, yes, be safe. Okay, this is the last one of the new year. Please don't drink and drive uh, for the holidays. Call an Uber, call a Lyft, take a bus, walk if you have to. Be safe. Join me in one week's time when we do our first one of these in 2020, okay? I appreciate everyone tuning in. You guys are the best. And until next time, stay frosty.